Hello and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Godam Hans, Assistant Clinical Professor of Law at Vanderbilt Law School. We will discuss his article, How and Why Did It Go So Wrong? Theranos as a Legal Ethics Case Study, which will be published in the Georgia State University Law Review. So welcome to the show, Godam. Thank you for having me. It's uh yeah, no, my pleasure. And I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about this because as you know, I really enjoyed this article, which got me thinking about the way that I teach my own PR class. Um but I was wondering if we could start kind of by taking a step back and framing it a little bit more broadly. So like when you teach professional responsibility or when you thought about teaching professional responsibility, what did you kind of look for in a professional responsibility case study? In other words, like what did you think would be important to kind of show your students in order to have that kind of PR conversation? Yeah, um, I will start with my actually my own law school experience, which I think has really been important for me in my sort of ongoing journey in teaching PR. So I went to a law school that you could satisfy the PR requirement by taking clinic. And so that is how I satisfied it. Um, I never actually took a class on legal ethics in law school, although we did cover it in clinic because when you're representing clients, as I do as a clinician, it's virtually impossible to not deal with PR. And so when I was hired by Vanderbilt, uh, one of the things that came up was what doctrinal or non-clinical course I would teach beyond the clinic that I teach every semester. The clinicians at Vanderbilt all teach one non-clinic class per year. And I volunteered to teach PR because A, uh, in my clinical fellowship, you know, it was something that had come up and um, you know, I think it's important that we all do service to our institution. And it was something that I thought would be a good way to do that, especially because in teaching clinic, you don't get to meet a lot of students um, because of the design of clinical programs. We only teach about eight students per semester. So teaching a class like PR, I thought would be a good way to sort of meet more students in the law school. Um, so I came to teaching PR without a lot of priors. I didn't really have an experience taking it in law school and I didn't, I went to a law school where people didn't really, because so many people took clinic and satisfied the ethics requirement by doing so, we didn't really have a culture of what PR was in the same way that other schools did. So I was very surprised to learn that students don't like PR um, or some students don't, I don't want to break with too broad a brush, but um, it, you know, some students view it as a requirement that is not, um, you know, it's, it's something they don't look forward to here at Vanderbilt. It is the only required class that people take usually as an upper class person. Um, so it just, it has a lot of negative associations, which I just didn't know about uh, before teaching it. Um, and so the first year I taught it, I taught it in a very sort of straightforward way. I use a book um, that's written by two clinicians, uh, uh, Lisa Lerman and Phil Schrag, and I, they've actually added a third co-author for the new edition. So, you know, I, I didn't teach it like a traditional lecture. Um, you know, we did a lot of small group exercises and I use polling software, but, um, you know, I, you know, was trying to 
bring my own spin to it, but didn't realize sort of the, the preconceptions that students had. So the second year um, uh, that I taught it, I was trying to think about what I could do differently to make it a more positive experience, which I know you and many other professors think about, you know, the benefit of teaching the same course year after year is that you get to sort of um, tweak it. So uh, Priya Bhaskaran, who is uh, a clinician at American, had um, in, brought a bunch of us together to think about Theranos, which you know has continued to become a um, very high profile story from a lot of different angles. And we all had been thinking about um, ways to sort of engage with the Theranos saga. And having read Bad Blood and devoured a lot of the reporting around Theranos even before it all started to go um, cockeyed, for, back of letter for lack of a better term, I thought, oh, you know, there's a lot of interesting ethical questions that the Theranos saga brings up. It has a lot of notoriety. Um, maybe, we, maybe I can include it in the class and see if students latch on to it. The last thing I'll say is that um, I think I talk about this a little bit in the piece. I worry that, you know, a lot of PR professors use film and television clips um, to teach, um, to make the class more lively for students who might be resistant to it. And I think that's really interesting, but I worry that because fiction is inherently, you know, more dramatic than real life, and this is where my English major, creative writing minor background is coming up, um, I worry that by giving students a very heightened sense of what lawyering is as filtered through television and movies, um, we're maybe sensationalizing things a bit more than we should when it comes to legal ethics. And I liked using nonfiction because I think it's just in inherently more grounded. And anyone who has read Bad Blood knows that it's a very shocking story. And so it, it felt that rather than using the lens of fiction, that nonfiction would provide equally engaging material that didn't necessarily tip into sensationalizing it. So that was sort of how I came to it. Um, from a broad background, which has, um, you know, been an interesting uh, evolution, at least from my perspective, on how to teach legal ethics. Mm. Well, so, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about, like, what happened in the Theranos saga that made it a especially useful case study for professional responsibility from your perspective? In other words, what was it about Theranos specifically that caused you to think that it would be useful in a PR context? Yeah, so there's a few things about the story and then a few things about the structure of the book or of the you know whole saga that I think makes it interesting. Um, first, you know, having followed Theranos for a while, you know, it, at the initial moments, it just seemed like another Silicon Valley company that had a lot of hopes and dreams and a very charismatic founder. And so reading the book, you sort of see that, oh, this is sort of an interesting story. There might be some issues. And, you know, maybe it seems like people are kind of in corners a little bit and from the company's perspective, but there aren't, uh, you know, any flashing red alarms. And so I think from an ethical perspective, that is very, um, uh, it was illustrative because for lawyers, often ethical issues don't start out as very clear-cut ethical issues, right? You know, it's only that by turning the water up that the frog is slowly boiled. And so I thought that the book itself did um, a good job of sort of 
starting you off from a place of maybe it's a little bit of skepticism. And then by the end, we see a lot of, um, you know, questionable behavior from lawyers that really starts to create, um, you know, red flags that are very obvious. So what do I mean by that? At the beginning, there's some lawyering that happens. There are some people who um, are maybe alleging conflicts of interest. There might be some questions about whether or not the organization is, you know, being truthful with government regulators and there are various ethical rules that come up there. And by the end, you have lawyers who are trying to get people to sign non-disclosure agreements by hiding out in the houses of board members. And so even if we don't think that, um, you know, any of the initial settings are problematic, by the end, I think at least it's open for debate. I think the other thing about uh, bad blood and Theranos is that David Boyes, who is well known as an attorney by many, um, is just a very high profile figure and he you know runs a, you know, a law firm boys Schiller and flexner and so many of my students who go into large law firms i think can sort of get a viewpoint into how one particular firm operates and the challenges they might face and so it's not really about theranos at all it's more just like how do lawyers work in concert with other lawyers and large law firms potentially with a company potentially with other um lawyers that are in-house and so it gives a bit of a sense of a structure of what one type of professional path can take and what ethical issues can arise um and so that's sort of i think why i thought of it and and thought it might be engaging for students mm. well maybe you could identify a particular episode in the theranos saga that was useful to you in teaching PR concepts instead of explain how you presented that particular episode to students? Yeah, so um, I mentioned this uh, a few minutes ago, but I think it is worth um, delving into. So the a moment of high drama in the book is that a Theranos employee named Tyler Schultz has started uh, communicating with John Kerry Rue, who is the author of Bad Blood and was a Wall, is a Wall Street Journal reporter. And he's basically blowing the whistle on some unethical or potentially fraudulent conduct that is happening in the company. Tyler Schultz happens to be the grandson of George Schultz, who I believe is Secretary of Defense um, in the Reagan administration and is a board member of Theranos. So Tyler, to some degree, was... Um, potentially hired as a favor to George Schultz or, you know, there's a family component as well to the professional component that's happening by him being an employee and blowing the whistle. And so he, it, it comes up that uh, they are able to figure out that Tyler, Theranos is able to figure out that Tyler is talking to John Carreyrou and they want it to stop because uh, he's revealing information that they don't want to potentially be revealed. So uh, Tyler goes to his grandfather's house to try to sort of um, tell them his side of the story. And he, George Schultz asks Tyler, you know, you know I, would you stop, you know, and, and we can sort of avoid any kind of legal consequences. And then George reveals that there are two attorneys from Boyce Schiller upstairs waiting, uh, lying in wait and trying to, 
with the hopes that Tyler will sign in sort of non-disclosure and cease and desist kind of language. Um, and so I use this story because, first of all, the idea of lawyers hiding out of the house is funny. Um, and two, it, it raises a really crucial concept in legal ethics that I'm sure you're familiar with, which is that ethical rules don't necessarily prevent conduct that we might have questions about. Uh, the rules themselves are pretty open-ended. I don't think they're particularly onerous to follow. And, and what that means is that a lot of potentially unethical or at least sort of queasy making conduct can happen. And so I use this episode because I ask students, you know, do, do we think it's okay for lawyers to um, be lying in wait trying to get someone to sign a, a document when that person doesn't have a lawyer with them, when that person is maybe 23 or 24, as Tyler Schultz was when this happened? Um, you know, is this the kind of conduct that we think is, you know, appropriate for lawyers? And if they say yes or no, we talk about that. And if they say no, it's not appropriate, then I ask them, okay, tell me what ethical rule do you think is implicated? And then I think that's really where I think the rubber meets the road because, you know, in telling the story, there's not really like a great answer to that question. I mean, there are a couple ethical rules that might come up and be glancingly related. Con con um, contact with unrepresented parties is maybe the most obvious one, but it doesn't necessarily seem that that is what's, you know, potentially being violated here. And so then we have a discussion about, you know, what are these rules for? Uh, can we be ethical lawyers with just the rules as our baseline? If we don't think the rules are working, how do you rewrite the rule? What happens when you rewrite the rule? Like what are the unintended consequences of that? So we start talking about statutory drafting and interpretation. You know, this is where I think um, why I like teaching ethics, because I think, you know, students come in the door, maybe think it's not going to be very fun. And, you know, I'm a big nerd, so I find these kinds of questions fun. But I think many students realize that the questions that we can draw out about what legal ethics is, what the model rules are doing and why and how we can improve them. I think, you know, of course, I think it's important to teach the text of the rules, but sort of broadening the scope and thinking about what it means to be an ethical attorney is where I think we all as PR teachers should be focusing our attention or some of our attention. And I think that's where we can maybe make students um, more engaged. Mm -hmm. Well, so Gautam, I wonder if you could just describe like how that played out in your actual class. Like when you brought up that particular example and discussed it in your class, to your recollection, like what did students have to say? How did they respond? Sort of how did that episode actually play out? In the teaching, I think students um, really got uh, into interesting debates in their small groups about what they thought about this episode and what it meant for their own um, uh, perception of lawyering. And so towards the end of the semester, once we had covered most of the ethical rules, so students had a good grounding in what the rules were, um, and uh, we spent a whole day on Theranos once people um, had finished the book and sort of understood the different ethical concepts. So in that 75 minute session, I did some lecturing, I asked some questions, I did some polling, 
And then I broke the students up into groups to have them take a different ethical rule that might have been implicated by what they had read in Bad Blood. So some of it had to do with confidentiality, some of it had to do with conflicts of interest, some of it had to do with contact with unrepresented third parties, um, representing the organization. These are the different ethical rules that I highlighted. And I asked students to basically take a look at the rule and think about editing the rule or adding a comment to the rule, uh, which is basically like an explanatory interpretive um, uh, guidepost for lawyers to consult when looking at a rule. And uh, the students were asked to basically take about 15 minutes to rewrite the rule in a way that they thought um, more directly implicated some of the lawyer conduct in bad blood. And then I asked a few students to act as sort of the board that would evaluate whether or not the modification should happen. So I did this for a few reasons. One, I thought it'd be interesting and, and uh, a different skill for students to learn about how do you write a statute or how do you write an interpretive comment and what are the sort of pros and cons of doing so and how do you make language choices. And then two, the students who had to adjudicate whether or not those choices should be um, adopted or not had to think about, you know, what does it mean to evaluate statutory language? What does it mean to enact it? How do you anticipate um, follow-on consequences that you might not have been prepared of, of um, about? And then we uh, had a discussion where the students sort of talked about, you know, both the process of drafting and the process of evaluating. So while I don't expect that many of my students will be in the position in a few years to, you know, edit the model rules um, as part of the APA, uh, I thought it was an interesting way for them to think about the flip side of all the ethical rules they've been consuming over the course of the semester. You know, I um, am pretty cynical. I try to avoid bringing them into the classroom as much as possible, but um, it does bleed out. And I spent a lot of time being critical of the ABA and the model rules, which I think, you know, there's much there's much there to criticize but i wanted to be fair and i don't think it's i don't think it's an easy job to write ethical rules and to promulgate them and get them adopted and you know it's a very slow process and i thought that by putting students in the in the driver's seat of um either writing new rules or modifying the rules or adjudicating those modifications you know maybe would give them a little bit more sympathy to the aba um after a semester where i maybe implicitly was being very critical. Um, I, I don't love both sidesism necessarily, but I think it's important to our students to be intellectually honest. And I, you know, I do think that while the ABA deserves critique, it's not an easy job. And so that is one of the ways that I tied together bad blood and the legal ethics rules and the sort of structure of how ethical rules are promulgated in a way to give students a more holistic understanding of the landscape. Mm. Well, so in kind of in practice, how did the students actually respond to this scenario? And do you have a sense of how it might have affected their understanding of sort of the rules in relation to this particular scenario and how they understood what was at stake and how we might think about it from an ethical perspective? In other words, like. What did the students have to say when you taught this particular scenario? The students, I think, thought that the rules were not working uh, in, 
I'm speaking, you know, generally, right, because there were 29 students. But I, I think what I took away from the conversations were that the students um, understood that being an ethical lawyer is important because of the role that lawyers play in American society, number one. Number two, the model rules, while they, I think, in general, um, follow through on what we might more or less as a community think are important ethical guidelines, they're not sufficient really to um, create ethical lawyering. That is to say, if some sort of, you know, baseline lawyer followed the ethical rules, you know, that person might or might not be ethical like in a, in a broader moral sense. And so uh, what that means is that the rules either need to be changed or lawyers have to use the rules as only a part of what it means to be an ethical lawyer. They have to bring in some other source of information or guidance in order to be quote unquote ethical. And that can be very personal. And so one of the things I tell students is that, you know, I'm teaching them the rules, but I'm also trying to highlight for them that to be a good ethical lawyer, you need more than just the rules. And I think the process of thinking about Theranos as a very concrete example, because mo my students haven't really spent a lot of time lawyering. They usually have spent maybe a couple summers and maybe an externship or a clinic experience. They're, they haven't really been in the, in the position of lawyering yet. Um, Theranos is a good substitute for them because I asked them to envision what it would mean to be in that situation as a lawyer for Boyd Schiller or a lawyer for Theranos. And then they realize, okay, yeah, the ethical rules are doing some work here, but I need to do more work beyond that in order to be ethical. And that is where I think, um, you know, my hope is, and I think my students seem to indicate this, uh, that the lesson I was trying to teach them really came to life at the end of the semester, that we need more than just rules to be ethical lawyers. We need our own guidance. We need, need our colleagues, our friends, um, bar counsel if we need to call the state bar um if we have ethical questions but there needs to be more than just the rules and theranos was like sort of the the tool that i tried to drive home because i can say that every day in class but it doesn't necessarily register and having a piece of you know concrete information about loitering that's very in-depth i think was a better message for it i think the students really enjoyed it i mean one thing i will say is that um the students, I think, found Bad Blood to be one of the um, high points for them of the semester. They had critiques for me that I'm going to incorporate, you know, when I teach it next time. But I think in general, I think they really latched on to it and understood what I was trying to do um, and found it to be, you know, an enjoyable use of time to read the book and sort of engage with it. Mm. Well, one thing I found really interesting reading your paper and in previous conversations we've had about your use of bad blood and the Theranos example in your class is that in a lot of ways it seems like the lawyers at Boyce Schiller didn't seem to think about ethical or even rules-based problems at all before doing a lot of the things that that they did and, you know, I mean, it strikes me that, like, at, you know, when I was practicing law, albeit briefly, although I, you know, continue to advise people, you know, on the reg, right? I, I mean, like, those were always questions that I was encouraged 
to think about before making decisions or taking any kind of action. And it's kind of strange, really, reading the book, listening to the podcast, thinking about what happened, the extent to which those kinds of questions didn't seem to enter the consciousness of the people who are making those decisions. And, and, you know, and I wonder whether that isn't kind of like highlighting that the, the way in which it's so easy not to think about ethical and PR related responsibilities, um, you know, isn't an important part of teaching the class. I think that's absolutely right, you know, and I think it teaches us a few lessons. First, you know, sometimes I wonder if the PR requirement is creating more problems than it is solving, because if we teach, if we create this class and then students start to resent it, do they inherently start to like devalue the concept of ethical rules? Like, I, you know, I, I wonder and worry about that. And so then you start to wonder, well, maybe that's part of the reason that we see so much questionable conduct happening because, you know, students, you know, might become lawyers and lawyers, you know, might resent the whole idea of ethical rules. And, you know, are we getting out on the wrong, are we getting started on the wrong foot when it comes to legal ethics? You know, I think that's a question for psychologists and sociologists and I'm not either, but I, I wonder about that. Um, you know, second, I really agree with you that it's kind of really disturbing to think that this kind of thing has been happening in a firm like Boyd Schiller, which we, you know, venerate, right? I mean, David Boyes for until relatively recently was thought of very highly. He probably still was thought of very highly by many people, um, despite what happened, you know, in the context of Theranos and also with the Weinstein representation, which I also talk about in my class a little bit. And so, you know, the thing that I try to remind students is that it's very easy in the legal ethics class to say, oh yes, we're all gonna be ethical lawyers. Where it becomes difficult is when the rubber meets the road when you're in practice. And I hope that they don't go to law firms or legal organizations or government offices where unethical conduct happens, but we know that it happens because people keep getting in trouble and disbarred or the subject of disciplinary actions. And so it's very easy for all of us to say that I'm going to, that I would stand up and say, I'm Spartacus, that I would stand up for ethical rules. And yet we see from this book that many lawyers who I think knew better or should have known better did not. And that puts us in a position of discomfort, really, to think about, well, who are we as ethical attorneys? And are we as you know, upstanding as we might have thought? Um, and I think that's like a hard lesson to teach students. And I will be frank and say I don't dwell on it too much because I think it's a lesson that will become more clear to them once they have more practice experience. Um, but I think it's important to highlight that, uh, you know, it's not about just having the values, it's about standing up for them as well. Mm -hmm. Well, Gautam, I, mean, I wonder if you could also talk a little bit about how you think you're gonna kind of change your approach or like modify your approach to teaching these episodes when you return to it in the coming, the coming year or semester. Um, and sort of like any thoughts about how to make using case study examples like Theranos more effective or more useful to students in understanding PR concepts? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that students said was that they wanted more consistent engagement with 
the book throughout the semester. So what I did basically was that I assigned uh, little pieces of bad blood throughout the term for homework so that by the time we got to the end of the semester, everyone would have finished it. Um, but what that also meant was that I didn't really engage with it um, consistently in the first you know, half of the semester. And I think students felt that they were reading it, but not necessarily getting very much out of reading it because I kept telling them, no, no, we'll talk about it more later. I think what I've decided is that, of course, teaching the ethical rules is like what this class is about, but how do I structure it in such a way that I don't feel like we don't have the space to engage with the story on an ongoing basis, maybe every you know, three or four class sessions as opposed to every seven to eight. Because, you know, if students are reading something but not talking about it, then they kind of wonder, well, why am I reading this? And so that was a piece of feedback that I thought was more, um, was, was very useful to me to figure out ways to sort of restructure my teaching. I think more generally, um, as someone who is still relatively new to teaching, I've just finished my fourth year of doing it, two years as a fellow, and then two years here as Vander at Vanderbilt. I just started to realize that we all have to do less. I mean, I think that we all, you know, it's very easy to think like, oh, I'm gonna teach everything and do it in a very in-depth way and students are gonna leave my class just knowing the ins and outs of whatever subject area I'm teaching. And I think just stepping back and doing less is something that I'm trying to um, incorporate. That doesn't mean that I don't wanna make my students prepared that, you know, in teaching them that I don't want them to learn a lot, but, so much of learning and lawyering happens over the course of years. It's happened over the course of years for me. It's not going to happen within a 13-week semester. That doesn't mean that we can't learn a lot and give students a lot of baseline knowledge, but I think that trying to teach the ins and outs of everything is just you know, not as feasible or doable, and I think doing less and doing it better is for me a, an ongoing principle. You know, I'll give a very concrete example of this. I used to teach, you know, um, lobbying rules. And I think that's really important. But, you know, most of my students are not going to become lobbyists. And I think rather than just what I learned was that, okay, I should at least gesture to the fact that lobbying rules for lawyers exist. And then those of them who are going to go off and do that we'll learn about them and those of whom are not will know that they exist. But I don't think going in depth about the federal requirements for lobbying rules was not really a great use of time. And rather than doing that, I could spend more time in depth on another topic. So that's sort of where I've come down um, as to how I'm going to in include more of Theranos is just to be more intentional about what I'm teaching as the core rules and really um, giving those core rules their due and for other components that are related to basically take a step back and say, okay, this is something that exists, but, you know, we can't devote time to everything that we think is really important. And that I think is what I've tried to take away from this experience, but also to, in my teaching more generally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with the idea that less is more when it comes to teaching law school classes. I mean, I think that, you know, it's so easy for us to pack in so many ideas into a class that the students are kind of overwhelmed and can't appreciate any of them. And focusing on what's really important is really in many respects, much more effective in helping them understand what's at stake. And so in closing, Gautam, 
I wonder if maybe you could like briefly respect reflect on like what you think is most important in teaching professional responsibility. I mean, like at the end of the day, what do you want your students to walk away from the class understanding? I would say that I tell my students that they have worked so hard to get to law school and they have worked so hard in law school and they will work hard to become members of the bar and to become attorneys. And it is impossible, I think, to be a good attorney without a strong understanding of ethical rules and their own ethical compass. And I tell them to value that resource, you know, to treasure it. You know, you've put a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money into becoming a lawyer. Don't let unethical conduct lead you to throw that away, even if you don't get disciplined. Because you might get disciplined by the bar, but you want to be known in your community as an ethical attorney, as an attorney that people respect, look up to, even if they're on the other side of the table from you in litigation or transactional work or policy work, that they, you still want to be thought of very highly. And that means following the ethical rules, but also being an ethical, ethical attorney. Take that resource of, um, and your reputation, just guard it, treasure it, because you've spent so much time on developing it that to throw it away by, you know, being an ethical, an ethical attorney or seeming like an unethical attorney is the last thing you want to do. Um, I, you know, you just don't want to be that attorney because you spent so much, so much time and effort in becoming a good attorney. And I really try to emphasize that to my students, that it's not just to stay on the right side of the bar association, it's not just to be the right person in uh, your community. It's about you and what you've done and you know, who you want to be as an attorney and as a person. Mm. Well, Gautam, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed reading your paper. I learned a lot from it. And it really made me think about teaching PR and sort of how to make it more effective. And I'm looking forward to incorporating some of your examples into my professional responsibility casebook. Um, so thanks double for that. Um, because it really was very productive for me. Thanks, Brian. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to be part of this great project that you're doing for our community. I sing right along when each new country record play. When they play a sad song, I sit there and bawl. I've listened so much, I can cry with them all. Not one single program I miss. The records sound something like this. Through. With the no 
about him What's a man to do but to roam So give her the deed to the homestead For a woman needs a home Maybe someday in heaven We both can set things right So draw up the papers, lawyer I'll sign them all Papers, lawyer. What else is there to do? Although she knows I love her, she says that we are through with no one here to love him. What's a man to do but wrong? So give her the deed to the homestead For a woman 